Welcome back, folks, to the conversation series on Get a Grip on Lighting. That's right. We wanted to listen to good podcasts, just like all you great folks out there, Greg and I. That's right. We wanted to listen. And so we picked up a couple new hosts, and one of them is Henrik Claussen. That's right. And today he's talking to Glenn Trum. Glenn Trum transitioned, transitioned from architecture to lighting to pursue the creative opportunity of light's profound effect on space and people. I really like that sentence, actually. He has presented a variety of topics to local, regional, and international groups, including events in Turkey, Brazil, Spain, blah, blah, all over the world, actually, and throughout the USA. He maintains a dual professional identity as Associate Professor of Lighting Design and Interdisciplinary Practice at Parsons School of Design in New York and founding principal of Flux Studio. Coming up hot in a minute, but first we got to talk about the easy folks, Greg. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. That's KeystoneTech.com. Light made easy. You, you said, yeah, light made easy right there. They're also doing controls easy now. They have the smart loop system that allows you to control most of their fixtures now easily from an app on your phone. I know we get wild with that, but this one is easy. I tried it myself. I brought it to a customer. They tried it. They loved it. Check out Smart Loop. I'm not saying all these ideas are bad. I haven't tried out Smart Loop yet. You know that. What I'm saying is someone's got to keep it easy and make it easy. And I'm trusting the folks down at K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com to take care of that for us. And, of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, where lighting meets business, driving lighting innovation. That's right. All these types of things. We're having an event with Arclight. That's right. Arclight and Nail have hooked up together at the Dallas Market Center, September 13th. Be there or be square, sucka. And of course, check out Ellis Evolve. Go to nail.org, N-A-I-L-D.org. Hi, guys. I'm Henrik Clausen from Fagerhul Lighting Academy in Sweden, and I have the pleasure of hosting Get a Grip on Lighting conversation series. We talked about calling it Henrik with friends because that's actually what I do. I pick out some people who has influenced me in my life. And today I'm having the pleasure of welcoming Glenn. Glenn is an old friend. Glenn is Glenn Schrum, for to be correct. He's an associated professor at the Parsons School of Lighting Design in New York. And he also is a principal of lighting design in Flux Studios. So Glenn and I have that in common that we both work with what we are teaching and we are both teachers. We've met a long time ago and we've been on various boards and we will try to discuss a little bit what we learned from the things we have done on our journey. And um, I would like to remind you on when we shook hands for the first time, Glenn, and now I have a feeling that you remember it. So um, <laughs> you had a well, next, please. Um, well, first I wanted to thank you for um, <laughs> inviting me to the conversation. It is uh, it is great to be able to connect over the internet with 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 you. Um, well, I as you reminded me, the first time that we met was in Allingsås, Sweden, when I was a, a workshop head. Um, I know after that we met many times um, in yeah. my role as the U.S. coordinator of the Professional Lighting Designers Association and. Um, that the experience in Allingsås in particular for me um, really was one of the best professional experiences that I've ever had. And to your observation about how we both share a bridge between practice and education, um, the Allingsås workshop and other educational experiences that I've had really bring those together in a way where you can um, share through with students, share your, your experience and some questions that you have while they're working with light as a medium and working with the technologies. And, um, you know, so there's not a, a, 
an abstract theoretical component that is leading. Instead, what's leading is is the uh, the sort of practice of lighting. Could you compare it with some other maybe U.S. based sort of event and help our listeners to understand what what's the difference or what is the essential going thing you wanted to come to be a workshop head all the way to Sweden? It's a long journey and it's it's a it's a pretty. We think it's a, one of the biggest events. In global on global, but I don't really know if it has it is like that. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's what's unique about it is that how there's a combination of um, a, a big social event that gets people to um, the, of a community that aren't lighting designers to really recognize and appreciate the power of light, um, and and also its ability to transform environments that are familiar to them. So this same kind of outcome happens all over the world in these light art festivals that happen, that occur. Um, but what I think is very unique about Alingsas and the PLDA's kind of establishment of it with the group and Alingsas really built in from the beginning that it was not only an opportunity to have that outcome, but another outcome was really these educational connections that were being made. And, yeah. um, and so that I think is, is, pretty unique um, and one aspect of the made it so unique to me was just how it was really this, this incredible kind of merging of different cultural perspectives on light. I remember in my team, I had students that were from six different countries and then I there were there were no Americans in my team. So I offered that perspective and um, just a, a really great way to see what's the same, but also understand what might be different. I, I can tell you that after we've been there, it's more and more common that private homes sort of do some garden decoration while there's the festival. So they want to compete a little bit with the professionals. How do you feel about when you do something that you really have a deep philosophy about and then somebody puts up a, a garden gnome and listen, lights it up or something? Is that good or bad that, they, uh, that the locals interact? Oh, unconditionally good. Absolutely. Cool. And in fact, I mean, this is one of the um, one of the sort of exciting trends, I think, um, in lighting design is to really recognize that where historically maybe the lighting designer is this expert that holds all the information and in, in, in promoting light as a medium, we're, we're really ultimately asked, kind of promoting and trying to get people to hire us. And that's the main outcome. And to mm. pivot pivot away from that and have it to be more about the lighting designer sharing their knowledge and the passion, so that people can be their own creators and um, and really just raise um, you know raise that confidence and awareness of the medium, but also along the way maybe sort of help them to understand some of the best practices and some of the ways lighting designers might think about light differently. Yep. Cool. I would um, I would like to jump a little bit forward to 2011. That's what when we both were working on the Elf. Remember that we had an Elf yeah. project, which was uh, architectural lighting fundamentals. Could you share your thoughts about what we actually did then? So was this the um, the uh, the PLDA PLDC. educators group? Yeah, at, PLDA. At, yeah, yeah. So it was at the um, it was when we had the the lighting educators summit specifically that we were working on. Um, well, yeah. I mean, this was such an incredible moment um, and one that I, I hope we can get back to of, of really bringing together people with from lighting educators from all over the world to look at what those fundamentals of how we teach light might be. Um, we need to get back to it. But, um, but I, yeah. 
I think one of the really amazing outcomes for me in that was just appreciating how many different locations within academic contexts and professional contexts and um, that lighting education is occurring um, and really a kind of understanding a bit more about how the students within those different settings and the outcomes that they are looking for vary. So we came together on fundamentals in some ways, but then we also understood quickly how it wasn't a one size fits all kind of a solution. That was that was my memory of it. Yeah, I thought I thought there was such a wonderful openness and a, a mood of sharing that you not you sort of didn't push like we often do at meetings. We want to push our design, our idea into something, but it was really a, a humble and embracing company where we listened to how do you do in how do you do it in U.S. How do we do it in Europe or whatever? So, uh, but I was wondering, what do you think? Did we did we succeed? Because at least we made a lot of friends. That's probably the biggest. But what about the outcome? We are are we still missing it, or do you think we have something there? Well, I definitely think we're not there yet. I think that was that that was really meant to be a start, and then um, mm. it, it we didn't keep keep that conversation going with the same focus. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, but I would really welcome revisiting a group of lighting educators that can come together to to um, talk about those issues in more detail. Um, we had a big agenda for a short meeting. And I think we did it. A, a, we got a lot done, but but it really is going to require more regular um, regular conversations. Who who should chair that now? The um, PLDA doesn't exist any longer. Who who should drive this change? Well, I mean, the, the PLDA, this was one of the ways that the, the association varied from other associations was how, um, from the beginning, education was integral to the mission. Um, and I, I look at an organization like the IALD, where the beginning of that group was really a, a more of a professional mandate to, to support the um, practice and the business side of, of lighting design, which is also very important. Um, yes. But then the ILD along the way set up this education trust and, um, you know, they have, I guess, like it or not, inherited the role of, of being our um, umbrella that it is a way to connect across different institutions and, and, and levels of education. So I'd love to see them um, kind of assume that role of organizing in a way that PLDA used to. Yeah, because when I when when I was doing this research for it, it seems that in two thousand and thirteen you were a member of the uh, of the board of the task force for the global certification in lighting design, which is I think is still missing, and it is still there are so many things that we've touched, but we've never really brought it through because we we don't have it yet, do we? Or do you think we have it yet? Well, I mean the the credential was has been launched it's been in place there are um you know there's been a growth in membership and the membership is more international in its representation um i think that the um the initial charge of that group and creating a credential was especially challenging because of how late relatively there was a discussion about this so you have so many practices and designers that have been operating without this credential that mm for them to say, well, I need to take time to establish this in for my own self, it wouldn't necessarily be beneficial, but for the field at large, it would be more beneficial. It's a, it's a challenging thing. 
But but do you think it was a little bit Wild West where everybody could print a calling card and call themselves lighting designers because that was what we were fighting or what we as a company tried to say that we would like to do business with people like yourself and not by somebody who just printed a calling card and said, hey, I'm a lighting designer, you know. Where yeah. are we today? How far have we evolved? Well, I think... Um, the the spirit of the credential was exactly what you're describing. I mean, that's the that's the outcome that was desired. Um, I do think that it has raised um, the. If you look at some of the people that have pursued the credential, they are people that are working outside of the model of independence that the ILD professional membership requires. Meaning, they're mm -hmm. embedded within some some part of this of the kind of sales chain. Um, and that the credential is an, is a is a really appropriate way for them to establish that they are practicing in a way that although it may not be independent, it is it is comprehensive. Um, where I think the 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 membership has slowed is those designers that are working within the independent model that haven't seen the benefit in establishing their qualifications because mm. their work itself already represents those qualifications. And that's what I mean by it being, a, I think maybe it came a bit too late. But how do you, uh, could you share with our guests, how, how do you get these credentials? What do you need to deliver or show the IALE to, to get that? Um, so there are a series of domains, um, which are you know different categories of how you operate. And you have to demonstrate through um, a variety of different means you have to sort of prove that this is how you how you function as a lighting designer, and some of them that that I and others on the committee really um, advocated strongly for is the idea that collaboration and being mm. up around the table with others on the design team is absolutely critical to being a lighting designer. You can't be a part of the process where they just send you the documents and then you send them back lighting specifications. It really needs to be this conversation about what the goals of the design are. And so how a person that might not have a, a, a position that really prioritizes that, how they can show that they do operate in those ways in when they want to and that they're committed to in every opportunity. This is different than other kinds of credentials where it might only be about the outcome, the, meaning the installed lighting. So the, so the fact that the process is important. Um, and in the process, including collaboration, was one example. But it also means that you can still become an, a, cred a credential lighting designer without having gone to university, where you can be self-made like we were in the old days, because there was no really. Um, I, I learned my because I'm an electrical engineer, and you took an architect approach, and so we learned something, but not nearly enough to be a lighting designer as the ones we meet today, who are brilliant people. And it's so much more complex than when we started. I think that's fair yeah. to say. Absolutely, but um, but there's I think there's a recognition um, in the credential that there are, there's not only one path to becoming a you know a person that should be certified to be a lighting designer. That that these paths that might involve on the job training that might include coming from varying backgrounds um, that they all are valid if you can demonstrate that they that the way that you work now has these levels of sophistication. So so another example of a domain is the importance of demonstrating that you're using science and research to inform your designs. Yes. So um, important. So, 
Yeah, and if you look at someone that came through some of the master's program, all the master's programs, I would say, um, you know, this is built into the curriculum of the master's programs. Um, but there are certainly practicing designers that don't have those educational yeah. credentials, but that are staying very current and really are informed by, you know, different aspects of research. So um, the intent was to allow different ways in. Um, the one accommodation that was identified, which you may not be aware of because it isn't sort of advertised broadly, is that there are certain years of practice required to apply for the credential. And if you have a master's degree or actually an advanced degree in lighting design, you can, those, that time in school can qualify as a year of practice because it recognizes if you have a year okay. working full-time in school, yeah. that that's at least as good as a year in practice. I get that. I remember we did something or the ILD offered us from Europe, everybody who was a member of the PLDA when that association sort of fell apart that we could get a, a, a free an entrance level to uh, ILD. Did that, did that work? Were many people shifting from Europe so that they joined the International Association of Lighting Designers? Um, well, I, I'm not, I wasn't on the membership committee of the IALD okay. to, to see the inside of that. I can um, share that I, I definitely saw an increase in the international um, membership of the IALD after um, the PLDA um, kind of no longer existed. I, I yeah. think that um, they're very different groups, but nonetheless, I mean, we all really, I think, recognize that it's important to be a part of a, of a community, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. We, we need to go, we need to get back to discussing our pupils and their backgrounds, but we'll wait because I need to know what happened in Texas. There was clearly something in Texas that shook the world in 2011 <laughs> about some legislation thing. Could you help us understand that if you know more than I do about that? Well, so there was a, a, a bill that was put in front of the, the Texas legislature. So these are the elected officials that make laws in, you know, within a state. So the implications of the laws don't exist beyond Texas as a state. But um, nonetheless, they, they were a, there was a legislator that proposed a law that anyone who would practice lighting designer needed to be a, um, needed to be a professional, in this case, pointed to licensure. So they said you either needed to be a licensed electrical engineer or a licensed architect in order to practice mm. lighting design, which we recognize neither of those two licenses actually qualifies you to do lighting design. But in the absence of something else they could point to, they pointed to those licenses. Okay. And, and it was successful. It was a past law. It got it, it was removed soon after because of the actions of the ILD and ILD members in Texas. Um, but nonetheless, it was a bit of a of a wake up call to say if there's not anything better to point to, and then you know uh, all these people that are qualified won't be seen as qualified. It's because it happened really in the meantime, or in the in the space between our first meetings with the ELF, the fundamentals, and before, and before ILD got out with the certification, right? So it was, yeah. it was something in the middle that probably triggered, or I don't, know, I guess it triggered a ILD's initiative. It did it got very a much. A bit so. more power behind it. Mm. Yeah, very okay. much so. So. Um, the next thing is that uh, you've become a professor. That means sort of that you have your master, you have a PhD, and you're teaching at Parsons now, and you've done that for how long time? Is it 10 years? 
Um, well, I've been full-time for eight years and then part-time beyond that. And I have to uh, point out, I don't have a PhD. I have a master's. So in, uh, in Parsons, a PhD okay. isn't, isn't a critical. So. Okay. So um, how does that feel? Well, moving, it's very different. I know Michael wrote it very well. You know, he has also his shop in, in Berlin and then he's teaching at Wisma. And it seems that, and now I'm teaching at Olborg and I'm working here, it seems that we are somehow being accepted and integrated in the scientific community that we tried so hard for many years. And it was like, no, 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 you're sort of the practical guys and we are the academic guys. Could you share your thoughts on, on strengths and weaknesses about that? Well, it's, um, I mean, I think, you know, these different um, school environments, academic environments have a different focus. So one thing that is very specific about Parsons, which differs from the other schools you mentioned, is that the master's degree that a student gets at Parsons is a master's of fine arts in lighting design. So our program from the beginning, when, when James Knuckles um, and others founded it in the early 1980s, was designed to support architectural lighting designers um, outside of illuminating engineering. So there was always a bit of a distinction. So I guess I would, um, I don't know that I am accepted in scientific circles just yet. <laughs> um, I, I know that, uh, you know, the research that, that we do and that I've done as an artist and as a designer and as a practitioner has some different, a different focus in some ways, um, although it certainly overlaps. But it's also important to recognize that my, my graduate work is a master's of fine arts in studio art. So hmm. um, it's research oriented practice, but it is decidedly outside of, of more conventional kind of scientific research, um, at least as those communities see it. So, so when I read how you describe yourself in some of the papers and some articles where you have been interviewed, it's a little bit hard to see if you are more the artist more the lighting designer what do you what do you feel in your stomach yourself what is clean um all of the above um and i don't mean to be elusive about that but i actually do think this this really um in in many ways i really look for bridges across ways that i'm operating and in ways that i'm thinking so um i think the lighting designer, light artist, lighting educator, for me, there's a continuum across those three. Um, if I had to choose one, it would mm -hmm. be lighting designer, um, I have to say, um, because I, I feel so strongly that that um, putting the work out in the world is integral to what I think I what I need to do in the way that I study my interests. Um, in my work as an artist, I always hesitate to really differentiate that from design. It's, it's a big question for me of where those boundaries are. So, mm. um, yeah. But I know from, from my case, my, I'm really, really happy to get the opportunity to educate people and to see that glow that we have in the eyes of, of our students, that they want to become lighting designers. It's, it's very, very rewarding. And it's wonderful to hear them say that we, we create some kind of a balance to the very academic people. There are definitely people at the university who never been outside the walls and haven't really been fighting some of the things that we do. So very often, if they ask me something, I'll say, from my personal point of view, it looks like this. But from the university point, it looks a little bit different. So I think that you contribute a lot 
by being you and Michael does the same in Visma. I hope I can follow your footsteps and be inspired by what you do because you bring so much to the table in, in a very different way. And when we look at the uh, answers from the students, when we have questionnaires, the favorite teacher or the best lecture or whatever they are rating, we are pretty good because it's tangible somehow. Have you any uh, any feedback from from the US or from your daily work on these kind of things? Um, well, I first I want to thank you. That's very generous of you to to say um, and to share. Um, so for me, the um, and I I mean there's so many examples. I can think of a conversation I had with a student yesterday about um, their thesis project. And in the course of conversation, we talked about um, a kind of, she asked a question about my research interest, and then I shared some of that. And then she asked, well, have you ever been able to incorporate this into a project? And then I could talk about the project, which is of course, simultaneously talking about the ideas behind the project, but also the, the very real challenges in executing the project. Um, yeah. So that really, I, I feel like where we are as a as a field in our history, um, it's so important to be putting the work out into the world mm. and sharing a way to approach practice that is more research oriented. It is more critical in looking at societal issues and issues of, of design's role and how we can address those um, that in order to um, really establish what lighting design is and what the potential of light is, we need to be able to model ways of practicing. Um, we're not at the same place as architecture where you, where it's such a long-standing history as a field, there's no question what an architect is. No. It's, so then you can have the benefit of having people that just focus on a more academic perspective of that field and then others that take on practice that might not ever address academe in academic context. Um, I feel like we just still have to do so much. Um, I, I look forward to a day where we can have that level of specialization, but I, I feel like that's yeah. not where we are. No, that's, <clears throat> I totally agree on that. I've wondered sometimes, it seems that the um, average age of our students is like people who has started a career, maybe in design, maybe in, in engineering, and then after a couple of years said, no, I want to do something different and then move to lighting design. So I talked to one of our mutual friends recently and he said that he doesn't feel the same way, but I see him in my, in the school in Copenhagen, we have, we have fairly old students, like saying plus 30, half of the class who are very, very critical. Also, it's, it's not like teaching in a, in a, in a basic school where you teach somebody math. They really want to ask why, how, very operational questions. What is the average age of your classes and do you see a change over the last couple of years? Well, um, I mean, as long as I've been at Parsons, it's always been a pretty balanced mix of some students that come straight through their undergraduate and maybe they work for one or two years and then they come into the master's program in lighting design. Um, and then other students, as you're describing, that might be making a career change, or in mm. some cases, they might have found lighting design as a field and worked in it for a little while, but recognize that they want to have a focus on it so that they can, you know, get to the next level of, of their creative yeah. and <clears throat> professional work. So I haven't seen a big, um, a big shift there. But one thing I can share is that um, what it's been so um, 
just I feel I find it to be one of the really amazing things about lighting as a community is that the there isn't a real difference in terms of how those students are interacting with one another and with the faculty and with the field at, at Parsons. It it quickly becomes a, a, a very um, a very um, kind of supportive community around this topic of light. I haven't thought about it that way, but it, I, yeah, I get your point. And we see that we have many, many people from, from Asia. We have from South America who comes up and lives two years in Copenhagen, which is a huge investment and a lot of time for them to get there. And it's super cool to see a Mexican working with a Russian, working with a Swede, and then living in Copenhagen and looking at Danish architecture and Danish design. And you know, you hear perspectives that you've never even thought about because we are so embedded. The first many years of my life, I lived in Copenhagen, I worked with Danish lighting designers, Danish architects. And so you, you suddenly see it just explodes and you get so much input. How is your mix on cultures in, in, in the US? Oh, it's very similar to what you're describing. I mean, we I don't have the exact numbers of of how everything um, the 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 um, kind of backgrounds of our students compare now, but it, there's never been a, a year that I've been at Parsons where we've had any less than twelve countries represented in our incoming class. Um, That's cool. And yeah, and, and I mean, it's also a beautiful. This is what's so amazing about being embedded in New York City as well, because there there are communities. They, you know, the New York community is so diverse as well. So it becomes a place that that people from all around the world um, want to come to study in part because of that international mix, it, um, not unlike Copenhagen. Um, one thing I wanted to point out was when this became incredibly um, obvious and really a, a focus was the year where we were teaching completely online during the pandemic. So yeah. we had a, stu a studio class where we had students that were across eight time zones. I mean, I say this now as a celebration at, at the time, logistically, it was just <laughs> it was it was awful. <laughs> um, but it was a it, we, we had an assignment where we um, charged the, the students to be doing hands on work with light in their home. Um, and it was so amazing when how resourceful they were about materials. So we had one student that, that was joining us from an island in the South Pacific, and she created a material out of woven coconut leaves. Cool. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, at the same time, we have someone in New York that walks out the door, you know, and, and gets something on, you know, at a readily available place that's not a lighting design store. And it was a beautiful alignment of... Um, or example, I guess, of the backgrounds being varied. Well, we had our faculty was very clear with us because we had quite a lot of people who moved to Copenhagen, lived in a small flat and were completely isolated while their families mm -hmm. back home were either sick or, or really seriously hurt. So um, so we had to take good care of them and and to be a supervisor for the masters, for instance, nine ah, more than half of the time was about nursing them and telling them your mother still loves you you can't do much from here you can't go home and we had people crying almost at every meeting it was very very hard and our faculty was extremely strict they said we don't want to have a covid generation of lighting designers so we said okay they let you pass because that was that year so we were we had to be tough with them but you also had to embrace them from a human side it was it was really a challenge very different yeah. from just being a teacher
Yeah. It, was that the it same? It certainly in... was. Um, well, it was somewhat the same. I think um, our experience was, um, I guess, we certainly had these sort of intense moments and the, the, um, the need to um, really recognize how you, it's not only, you can't take someone's educational experience out of their personal experience. They're always merged. Um, and if someone is, you know, worried about a family member that's ill, as much as a, as a teacher, you might want to say, yeah. don't think about that. It's not, it's <laughs> no. not what you should do. And it doesn't make any difference. So it was a, it was a real reminder of that sort of the, the human, imp the importance of really recognizing the, the human condition as a person that works in, um, you know, what is ultimately a social act of, of learning. Um, we had the, I think I had the good fortune, I know I had the good fortune of, I had a, a an academic leave, a sabbatical that overlapped with the beginning of the pandemic. And so I had, a, I had a break to think about, about teaching and I had mm. space in my brain to really kind of say, well, how might we address this unique challenge and opportunity of online teaching? So we developed as a part of the Studio One, which is the, as it, name suggests the first studio in the in the MFA curriculum, we developed a way to do hands on learning that we'd never had before, where all the students worked in what we call their online lab. So they set up a location, we actually sent them materials all over the world, we sent a kit of materials that included a light meter and flashlights and torches and materials. And then we had a series of exercises that everyone did that were similar and um, we introduced an online platform. We just, there were all these innovations that said, that, that addressed the condition, which we are now incorporating into the in-person learning, which is really exciting. So um, it wasn't all compromised. No, but the way I understood you, were you personally wondering if you should carry on with, uh, with teaching during your sabbatical or was it ways of developing education? It was that I had the, um, no, I, I was happy to not be teaching when that initial transition to online happened in the middle of that, of the spring of 2020 semester. But my return to, to teaching in the fall, I had, the, I had the, the kind of advanced notice that I knew I needed to spend some time thinking about a way to change how we had been teaching. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's harder, it would have been harder for me to do that if I had you know, dealt with the end of that spring semester and transitioning to online in a rush. You know, I, I had, yeah. I guess I, I guess I felt like I was, I had the privilege of being able to see some of the opportunities of it instead of just what hadn't worked. Do you think there will be cross-cultural exchange of our students? Because we, we often see people go home again to their, because they say intentionally, we come to Copenhagen for two years and then we go back to Hong Kong or Brazil or wherever they want to go. How do you think that will there in the future be people from Hong Kong working in Brazil? Will it be a global setup or will it be still be local? Because we always say, or at least I always say that lighting is still very locally cultural to whatever longitude and latitude you're at and stuff like that. How do you think about that? Well, it's, um, I mean, we have a lot of, of what you're describing as well, where our students will come to Parsons with the intention of gaining an education and then going back to, um, you know, where they were from before they were at Parsons. Um, and I'm very much supportive of that because I feel like this is where the established lighting communities are supporting 
making other communities more established. I mean, mm. I, one thing of, that I've been uh, struck by in, in the, the kind of conversations that you have at these international lighting um, events uh, are that you find out, like I remember a conversation with, some, with a colleague who was teaching a lighting course in Portugal. And he said, as far as he knew, it was the first lighting course that had been taught in Portugal. And this was only 10 years ago. And I think yeah. about that, you know, relative to Parsons, where the first lighting course was taught in 1970. It's, it's well, I think yeah. let's help to build up the whole world by having people come here and then go back and you know, yeah. kind of grow. So, um, but anyway, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you, I think you did. Um, but we have this challenge that we were, we were challenged to do an international lighting design course and we get these massive amount of people coming from all over the world and then suddenly there's government saying oh well we are we don't get more people working in Denmark they are all going home yeah but if you want to have an international lighting design education you must expect people to go home and mm. now last year we got this legislation we are only allowed to take in as many foreigners as Danes sign up so our mm recruiting system has to be different now because if we just have 15 Danes, we cannot have 35 from the outside. We need to reduce the class, which is really, really sad because there are so many. When you read the resumes and the, the CV of the people, you would just love to hire them directly. And it's mm -hmm. such a shame if we put up legislation that, uh, that sort of hinders people from other parts of the world to take part in the education. How do you handle that? Um, well, it, I mean, it, it's quite a different context between um, Alborg and Parsons. So Alborg is a state-supported university yes. and Parsons is a private university. So um, the Parsons in the new school university that we're a part of are by design very much international and yeah. diverse. So there's really an, an embracing of that, of the, the what how that creates a that diverse population creates a different kinds of conversations how? um so it's but at the same time I and mean, we have our own challenges i can tell you that if 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 uh, we were ever told that we could only have as many international students as we have american students <laughs> our, yeah. our enrollment would go way down um if anything our challenge has been promoting the program within the american academic systems because um they lighting design isn't very well represented in architecture or interior design um, undergraduate curriculum so um, many people just don't even know that it's an option uh, okay i see that well um i would like to go to now we started back in 2009 and what did you do yesterday <laughs> you did some program i did right? i did yesterday yes um i i organized a program called toward carbon efficient lighting so um the focus here cool. is to is to use i was very um happy to use the platform of of parsons lighting public programs which have attendance that varies in location but also in terms of roles um to really bring a spotlight onto this issue of us as a community needing to do much better at not only thinking of energy usage as it being enough that we need to really address carbon emissions across the entire process of um, making and disposing of lighting equipment so um yes i was very happy to uh to raise that and and it's increasingly the focus of our conversations in my school you had 
Kevin. You had Kevin Shaw down there. I thought he's been traveling all the way to you. Well, it was an online program, so this was the benefit. Okay. Kevin, Kevin could join it, join the program from uh, from his kitchen in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, and we had attendees from a very range of locations as well. We organized it in the middle of the day, New York time, so we could also have some uh, attendance in in Europe and also on the west coast of the U.S. So. Again, a lesson the, learned from uh, from the pandemic. Yes. We we didn't used to do these programs online. No, no. Are there were there any reoccurring subjects, or if you should point out the three most important things you discussed it yesterday, what would that be? Um, well, we talked about the first thing I mentioned, which is really just how energy usage in and of itself isn't an, isn't going to be enough. And um, although it may be in in the short term. Um, it will help, but the embodied energy has this long kind of echo of of how how long it takes for us to address the the carbon emissions of a the product that has very high carbon emissions in its creation. Um, we mm -hmm. also launched as a part of the program the the Green Light Alliance um, uh, Life Cycle Analysis Incubator Program. Um, which one of our alumni, Leela Shanker, has um, organized with a group of people um, from all over the world, which is a, a group of manufacturers and designers that are getting together to really try to chart out what life cycle analysis for lighting design should look like, um, try to come together around this issue, which is so challenging of how we understand what the, um, the carbon implications of all the different steps in creating a luminaire yeah. and disposing of a luminaire would be. Um, we, we're really struggling yeah. there. It's very, very important that we get some tools and get some common idea because on some papers it looks like these are much more much more carbon neutral and ours are much worse. But then it's because you take something into account and others don't. So it's it's right. really, really good that you address that. Sorry. and. Please carry on. No, that was, yeah, so this was, you know, launching that and really getting, I mean, you are further along than many in that you've been thinking about this. And we pointed out in the program as well that within the um, the international lighting community, really Europe has been leading the leading the conversation on this issue for years. Um, but for, for many um, that attended the program, I think they they don't um, haven't been considering the challenges of this of how we'd even get this no. information, um, and then the third was really looking at and this was the focus of Kevin's presentation, looking at um, circular economy and circular issues. And um, for for those that might be listening, this is really talking about how we address all steps in the life cycle. Um, and Kevin gave some great examples about how earlier in his career, as long as ten years ago, they were looking at um, repurposing existing lighting equipment on their projects. Um, just basically little ways that lighting designers can have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've, we've discussed an initiative with uh, which called, we called something about take back and update where we take back fixtures and update them. It'll be expensive and it would be probably cheaper at the end of the day to buy a new one. But there are a lot of companies that are genuinely interested in, in doing that. So we create a light engine that fits into that and has all the controls and bells and whistles and IoT and all that stuff. So it, it's actually the housing, maybe not the shielding, but, but some of the housing and the, and the uh, suspensions gear, that's the same. And mm -hmm. it seems that especially younger people are very, very concerned about this and say, we would like to pay a premium for, for getting the, that done. So it's mm -hmm. it's super interesting. And I also see my colleagues here, they are 30, 35, the ones that are 
highly motivated and they are, they are asking all the good questions and all the time you can just say, I don't know, we have to look into it. So it's cool to have these people among us. Yes, and, so, um, but, but it's great to hear that you're. It's great to hear that you're doing that. And when you say it's more expensive, probably more expensive. I mean, so is uh, like one of the issues that we have in the U.S. in development is it's less expensive to tear a building down and yeah. build a new building, but it's yeah. so much more expensive in terms of the carbon Im implications. It's not even in. It's not even a conversation. So we need to shift that that sense. No, of but it is. It, it takes a new paradigm. You simply have to really shake the box to get out. And, and we can only do that with help of, of very young people who mm -hmm. don't have so, who has a lot to lose, whereas we may not have that much to lose, but it's, um, it's really yeah. cool. So where, where do you go now? What's the next step after your, your presentation yesterday? Do you take, do another one or do you launch some programs for it at Parsons or? What, well, what? we, the, the last question that was asked in the, in the, um, the program was um, I asked the panelists to share what their um, kind of thoughts were about how this topic should be integrated into lighting education. And we got a range of responses, but I mean, the next step is absolutely to take this on. And so things like, you know, do we consider having an assignment where we give the students an existing luminaire and then they have to figure out how to work with it instead of, um, you know, a hands-on assignment where they're yeah. buying some new equipment. Um, and I, th I think that's really interesting. Um, the other point that came up, which I think is uh, worth considering, is how if we were to design with more kind of basic lighting tools and then use architectural integration as a way to create the interest, yeah. and then it's scalable to different types of equipment and maybe older equipment can be reused or in the, and we know the embodied carbon associated with a very specific highly fun, um, technically you know specific fixture is going to have more carbon emissions than something that's just a you know basic tool so having projects that might focus on what can you do within the constraints of a basic tool is is also interesting it's going to be it's going to be very interesting how we can go about it and uh, and how we can solve it. We think that daylight needs to be integrated much more. And I think the battle when I was young, we were architects was daylight, engineers was electric light, and now we hope that lighting designers are sort of integrating these things because the only way we can bring down our carbon footprint significantly is really good control systems that actually switches off the light, daylight harvesting in an intelligent way, not just in a stupid way as most of it works today, but where mm -hmm. something, you know, the blinds goes down, the light goes up. It's, it's like not interacting in any way. So it's, um, yeah. it's actually very, very interesting. Yeah, and now, for the uh, integration of, day, of daylight to really address mechanical systems loads um, yeah. and things like incorporating, you know, high, and integrating into the architectural design where you might be able to do photovoltaic arrays. Yeah. I mean, these are, the, these are all part of the solution potentially. That would be, that would be just wonderful. Now we have uh, chatted for around 45 minutes, so I need to ask you just one thing that really, when I was studying you here was... Uh, you say the medium of light and its relationship to our perception of space. That's sort of a tagline that you have several times on that. So can you explain what you really mean about, because I think it's a little hard to grasp, but what is it really? Because you have something about space and, and light as a medium. 
Do your best well, and share with us. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I, I happily would do this, and I appreciate you pointing out what might be confusing because to me that sense is, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's. Um, so there are a few things that are built into that statement. One is that the primary consideration is the experience of a person in the space. So cool. when I say perception, it is human based. That it, I don't care if the light meter tells me it's bright enough. It's whether or not the eye thinks it's bright enough. I mean, this is this is integral to it. And when I talk about the the um, the medium of light in its relationship to how we perceive space, again, with my architectural background, I'm particularly interested in how lighting design is meant to create places that can't be captured if you aren't physically there. So this is especially important in the Instagram world, right? Yeah. That a I, creating spaces as, as a lighting designer where even if they look interesting in a photograph, you don't understand them and you can't appreciate what's the best, what's the most impactful about them if you aren't physically there. So similar to the kind of ignoring what the light meter says if the eye says something different, ignoring what the camera says if the eye says something different. But you're actually telling me what I would call the spirit of the space. I have a friend who is a Buddhist monk and he always said that you have to be there. You have to be there for a certain time. We can say we need to adapt and recalibrate our retina, but he just has to be there to feel the space. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a, that's so important. And and it's sad that when we are now we have met before you and I many times, and we we know how we look. But I find these first encounters I've had with people on on the digital screen, it, it just doesn't work. It works to keep in touch. It works to to uh, to get the relation going. But establishing first contact in mm. on a screen that's really not easy. You lose so much of the um, of the uh, soft values or whatever you call you would call them. Yeah. Well, I I think I think that you I agree with you about that. And I guess um, just to reiterate, it's that I I feel like as lighting designers, architectural lighting designers, we create spaces where people spend time and they yeah. either con they connect with one another and we need to recognize that success lies in how those spaces operate to do those two things you know to that to make people want to connect with one another and to make people feel as you say um you know feel more fully and feel more present in the space i think increasingly we think of the digital realm as being the reality and as lighting designers we need to make a reality that makes the digital world seem like it's it, it's missing something. And if we don't keep doing that, and then something huge will be lost. So yeah, that's, our that's right. I think that's a very beautiful ending of a great conversation. I'll thank you once again, Glenn, for taking your time for this. It was great catching up with you. I hope if people listen in, they'll enjoy our conversation as well as, as much as I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for taking your time. Thank you, Henrik. It was great to catch up with you. See you in person sometime soon, hopefully. You know, Greg, we're always complaining about how complicated and difficult controls are. Well, guess what happened? The easy folks down at Keystone are going to keep it easy, make it easy. Light made easy with KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, Greg Eric. You know how easy it is. A smart loop system actually allows you to it's built onto the fixture itself so you can zone it however you want no one no longer worrying about where the switch is if you want that light with this light you can easily do it it's all programmed right in and it's cost effective that's the other part you know i learned that by looking at the pricing i'm like that's not bad and i actually got a big quote out there for it right now 
I hope to win. We'll see. Hey, you know, if Greg Eric's doing it, that means it's ready to be sold because he doesn't, McAvoy doesn't mess around. I've known him for a long time. He swings through the, the trees with a knife in his teeth. He delivers value for his customers at all times, folks. So, of course, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, the easy folks. And, of course, Nailed. They're proud members of Nailed. I'm a proud member of Nailed. Greg's a proud member of Nailed. Why aren't you? And if not, why don't you come down and join us with Arclight? They always throw a hot show, and so Nailed decided to hook up with them. And now we're coming in hot together on September 13th. Is it September 13th to what, Greg? Do I got the date the right? The 16th. Yeah, you got it right, man. 16th, Dallas Market Center. Folks, you got to get in get in with Nailed. You know it. Of course, LS Evolve. We've been talking about LS Evolve for so long. We're starting to see major traction. Once people get into LS Evolve, they cannot get out because it's so amazing. That's right. I'm not kidding you. Not because Nailed built it. I'm just telling you that this is the program of the programs. LS Evolve. Check it out at Nailed.org. Nailed.org.com. Come on, Michael Colligan. What are you talking about? Nailed, N-A-I-L-D dot O-R-G, Greg Eric. And, of course, Glenn Shrum, Henrik Closen. You know, Henrik's really coming into his own here, Greg. I mean, we got Web, we got Webb, we got Rom, we got Henrik now. Are we going to have a job soon? <laughs> Maybe back to selling lighting only, right? I mean, I've been listening to their shows, man. I'm thinking that, hey, man, I could take some time off here, brother. These guys are kicking it hot. <laughs> it's, it's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, we thank Glenn Shrum for being a guest, of course. We're always honored that people come on the show. And, of course, expanding that audience into Europe. You know what, folks? We just, and I know if you're still listening now, we just, we just charted in Denmark and Sweden again, sucker. That's right. We took over North America, get a grip on landing. We hooked up with some friends, and now we're going to take over the airwaves of Europe. That's right. Well, at least that's the goal. You know, you know how it goes. A lot of lighting peeps over there, too. And you know what the weird thing about Europeans is? All those sons of guns seem to speak English better than me. Better than Greg, at least. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>